Hey, this is Adam Carroll, and you're listening to Win the Day with James Whitaker. You're listening to Win the Day with James Whitaker. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, this is the number one podcast to help you win the day every day. Here's your host, James Whitaker. Let's go. Welcome to Win the Day. The quote for this episode comes from P.T. Barnum and says, money is a terrible master, but an excellent servant. As many of you know, I spent more than 10 years in financial planning back in Australia, and there are so many lessons from that time that I'll never forget. Three of the main ones were that first, people generally are extremely disengaged from their financial present, which completely neutralizes their success for their financial future. Second, just because someone was successful in their career didn't mean they were automatically good with their money. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've spoken with who are broke on paper despite having six-figure or better salaries. And third, that financial literacy is absolutely vital to any type of holistic and sustained success that people want to have. And in this episode, we're going to chat with one of the world's foremost financial literacy activists, Adam Carroll. Adam has spent more than 15 years helping people do more with the money they make. He is an internationally recognized financial literacy expert, a three-time best-selling author, host of the Build a Bigger Life podcast, and a two-time TED Talk speaker with more than 10 million views online. He is also the creator of the documentary Broke, Busted, and Disgusted, which aired on CNBC and is shown in hundreds of high schools and colleges around the U.S., In this episode, we're going to be talking all things money. We'll talk about how parents set their kids up for financial failure, how to get out of debt no matter what age you are, what you can do to raise strong children in the digital world, and how a simple, and I mean simple, action got Adam the opportunity that completely transformed his life and his career. Adam is an extremely accomplished entrepreneur and there are some phenomenal takeaways in this one. Let's win the day with Adam Carroll. Adam Carroll, great to see you, my friend. Thanks for being on Win the Day. James, it's my pleasure. It's been a while, and I'm super excited to be with you and your audience. Well, tell us about what your life was like growing up and, and about your relationship with money at the same time. Oh, man, my life growing up, what, well, I thought it was privileged, to be quite honest. Um, you know, I, I grew up in this idyllic uh, Midwestern household where my dad had a very abundant mindset. You know, if we needed it, we would get it. And I always thought that we were affluent or somewhat affluent. And, you know, when I got older, my dad came clean with me and laughed and said, you know, we were far from that. I don't know what made you think this, but I'm glad that you had the air of, of us having, having lots. I think it was just the fact that um, I was loved at home. Uh, there was lots of opportunity, it seemed like, at home. And I was really lucky because both of my parents had very positive mindsets and so there was always kind of an air of opportunity around the house. And I think that's kind of what helped shape who I am today. Yeah, absolutely. It's a big theme, isn't it? The positive energy, the, the love in the home, and of course, the financial literacy. These are, are core tenants that you and I both, you know, very passionate about and some of the, some of the light that we want to bring into the world. So I'm so excited to, to dive into all of that stuff today. What career opportunities did you gravitate towards at a young age or did you, did you get caught early from the entrepreneurial bug? Oh, man, you know the answer to this question, James, even before asking it. I was an entrepreneur from way, way back. And I'll tell you the very first story. Um, My mom had made a chocolate cake one day. 
And it was great. And I said, you know, I want to make one. I think I could make one. And she said, well, it's the recipe is right on the side of this Hershey's cocoa can. And so I made a cake. And it so happened that the neighbor came over that day and was, you know, really wowing it up that I had made this cake and how delicious it was. And, you know, maybe she'd like to buy one. Well, in that moment, like I had made the decision, I was going to be a cake baker, you know. And so I went around door to door and I sold three chocolate cakes that week. I think I made a grand sum total of $17 in profit or something, but I was hooked immediately. And it followed me through my high school and my college years. I mean, I did little things like buying big bulk bags of candy and having that in my locker and then selling them a quarter a piece you know, at school. Uh, when I got to college, I bought these gigantic popcorn uh, vending machines and they were like seven feet tall and they air popped a 24 ounce cup of popcorn. But I was, I was hooked on the idea of entrepreneurship. And so my career choices post-college really went after like sales and marketing because I made the equation uh, that, or the connection, if you will, that if I could sell it, if I could come up with an idea and sell it, I could, I could be a really successful entrepreneur. And um, you know, lo and behold, here we are some 15 years later of being self-employed and, and building businesses. And um, I would say it's all gone fairly well. It's hard to go back, isn't it? Once you've had a bit of the entrepreneurial bite, it's it's certainly the idea of going back seems a little, uh, yeah, a little tough. Dude, I am functionally unemployable at this point. I'm convinced <laughs> of it. Well, what about your commitment to your own to your own personal growth at that point? Was there a book or two in particular that really stood out and made you uh, helped you realize that perhaps you had more potential and power than you had given yourself credit for previously? Yeah, I think growing up, you know, I mentioned my parents were very positive minded. Um, they they talked about opportunity a lot. My dad was big into Deepak Chopra back in the day. And uh, he would tell me growing up that I was a wizard. And I didn't really understood what he was telling me at the time. I had you know visions of Harry Potter-esque kind of wizards. But he was telling me, what he was telling me, I believe, is that I could create whatever environment I wanted to create. I had the ability to manifest my own desires. And so when I read Think and Grow Rich the first time, um, which you are obviously well, well-versed in, I realized that the message of definiteness of purpose and of focus, attention. And I even have, I have a, a saying up on my door up here and it says the, the definiteness of a purpose for acquiring wealth is necessary for its acquisition. And I kept reading that over and over and over again. And that book, I think, was probably one of the first books that got me on the path. And then I went down this unbelievable rabbit hole of finding all of the quantum physics and law of attraction books that were out there. And I realized that we are all constantly, consciously or unconsciously creating our own environment. And I, I owe it to that book. I owe it to Think and Grow Rich that got me started. And there's a number of them now I could, I could rattle off that I tell everyone to read uh, if they want to leverage the law of attraction in their own life. For sure. What what about when it came to the practical application of these things? Was there a job in particular that you had that helped uh, transform your your mindset around life or business? Um, you know, interestingly enough, this is going to sound kind of odd, I think, James. But when I was in in college, I got recruited to sell books door to door. It was a company called Southwestern Publishing that recruits about four thousand college students a summer, and we go out and we knock two hundred doors a day. 12 hours a day, six days a week. So it's a brutal, brutal summer. 
Um, my first summer, incidentally, I was in Rancho Cucamonga, California. That's where my wife's parents live. I know it very well. Yeah. 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 So Rancho was home for me for 12 weeks and I went and knocked on doors and I got told no 198 times a day. And, you know, they told us if you sell two sets of books a day, you'll be successful. And what I realized in that business, not necessarily manifestation, although we were constantly trying to manifest what we wanted during the day, it was more about the fact that every no is just a next and that every no just gets me closer and closer to what I truly want. So after that summer and then the subsequent summer the next year, I really felt like uh, like I could deal with rejection better than just about anybody because it was no big deal. Like you could say no to me and I was just going to go to the next door. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a big thing. And I think that alone has made me an effective entrepreneur because when I hear no or I experience failure, it's like, eh, whatever, next. Yeah, it's water off a duck's back. It's funny, out of all the people who I've interviewed, people like Janine Shepard, who was hit by a truck, and one of the big things for her was even defying medical opinion. When she said, one of my favorite quotes of hers is when she said, I just don't listen when someone tells me I can't do something. And that extends to like very well-qualified doctors and things who told her, you will never be able to walk again because you're going to be a paraplegic for the rest of your life. And she's still doing amazing things today. Um, yeah, despite still being classified as a as a walking paraplegic. Uh, so I think that resilience and, and, you know, finding the gift in every adversity and very quickly moving on when there's a door closed in front of you is a, you know, a phenomenal attribute for anyone to have. What about experiences with money? When did that first personal finance first became something on your radar? You know, I, given that I was raised in a household that I thought we were affluent or mass affluent, I think was my thought. Um, you know, we would receive a, a J. Crew catalog in the mail, and I thought, oh, we're obliged to buy something because it seemed like that's what we did, you know? And then I got to college, and the way that I like to describe it now uh, when I've gone and spoken on college campuses is that I, I was a rich college kid and I quickly became a broke professional. I was a rich college kid because I, I was trying to live the same lifestyle that I had grown accustomed to at home but I was doing it on the pre-approved credit card offer that I got my freshman year that ballooned to like over $8,000 by the time I was a senior. And it was in meeting my future wife and she um, you know, was probably one of the most financially savvy women I'd ever met in my life. She said, Adam, get rid of your debt or I'm going to get rid of you. And you know, it was like a shot between the eyes, kind of like, oh my gosh, you're I think you're speaking truth. You're like, I, I like this woman. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, she and I have built a really incredible life together um, using very core philosophies around the, the mistakes that I made and the lessons learned in the midst of those mistakes. And then going out and teaching other people how to do exactly the same. So, you know, to answer your question, James, I think it was probably near the end of my college career where I started to take a really long, hard look in the mirror at, what did I have in debt? And what were the mistakes I made that got me there? And realizing real quickly, I didn't want to live that life. I wanted to live one that was free of encumbrances and debts and obligations, and one that was a bigger life, one that had freedom and flexibility and options and choices. Um, so it was from that point forward that I really started to dive in and, and pursue mastery of money. 
Yeah, love it. And you've, you know, obviously all your work today is such a great testament to all the things that you're doing. It's amazing that in America that they hand out pizza on college campuses in exchange for credit cards and things. It's something that I never knew about and that I didn't even realize uh, existed. And I actually, I'm not even sure if that uh, happens in Australia, but there are people like Sharon Lecter who sold more than 40 million copies of books because she wrote all the Rich Dad, Poor Dad books with Robert Kiyosaki. She is a financial literacy activist and she said she couldn't believe that that is her job, yet her own children fell into, into credit card debt. What are the things that you've, some of the steps that you've taken with your own children to insulate them from falling into that trap of, of credit card debt particularly? I love this question because I uh, I think the experience that I had on college campuses and talking to teenagers helped prepare me my help prepare me to prepare my own children for the same kind of environment. Um, the the students that I spoke to that were 18, 19, 20, 21, up to 25 years old, many of them had never made a financial decision on their own before they they arrived on the college campus. They didn't fill out their FAFSA. They didn't um, buy their own clothing. Some of them didn't pay for their own gas or their own meals. Many of them had no concept of what $1,000 borrowed meant. And what I realized was I wanted to bring my kids up in a world where they had made very tangible, real decisions around money. And so my wife and I realized that it was, first of all, important that they have money in their hand. And I wasn't just going to hand it out. I wanted my kids to have a work ethic and and you know, be industrious. Um, so we pay them based on chores they do at home. It's not a commission, but it's money that you're going to make for, you know, doing this work around the home. They also make money babysitting. My daughter has a part-time job. My son has reft uh, soccer and, and basketball games. Um, my other son has mown lawns and, and shoveled snow and done lots of other odd jobs. But what I'm most proud of, James, is the fact that all three of them have far more money in savings than the average American does right now. And they're also uh, very, very savvy and wise about making purchases that are no longer small, insignificant purchases. They're buying things like phones and computers, and they're making really educated choices in doing it because we prep them on the five and 10 and $50 items so that they are better prepared for the thousand and $5,000 items down the road. Yeah, it's amazing. It's what I wrote about in uh, the, my book, The Beginner's Guide to Wealth, that it's not necessarily the dollar value, it's the habit that you get into at a young age. So when you get older and have more money at your disposal, you can, you're naturally embedded with those big habits, oh, sorry, those good financial habits. And uh, something I talk about often is that Think and Grow Rich could just as easily have been titled Think and Grow Poor because the, the idea is completely the same. It's, you know, what you're, you're doing each day extrapolated over time is what create, it's what manifests that, that reality. You're a dad. I'm a dad. We know that if we really want to change this, if we really want to enact this financial literacy change uh, generationally, it all starts in the home. What should people be doing to teach their kids about money and when should they start that in the, in the home? I get this question quite a bit from parent groups who say, my, my kids are six or they're eight or they're three. You know, what, what age should I start? Some will say, my daughter's 18 and she knows nothing about money. Um, had that conversation just the other day, actually, a dad said, I'm sending my daughter off to school. I think we've done a great job. There's just one area that I think we've fallen down. And I said, what is that? He said, well, she knows nothing about money. She's carried my credit card the entire time she's been in high school. And when she needed gas, she charged it. When she wanted clothes, she charged it. When she went out to eat with her friends, she charged it. And for those of you that have younger kids, 
let me be very clear. That is not the way to bring your kids up to understand money. Um, I think we should start doing this with kids as young as five or six years old. And the way that we did it with our kids, which I think worked, was number one, um, we did give them an allowance. And the reason that we wanted to give them that based on the work or the chores they did at home was they need to have some tangible amount of money in their hands while it's still real and tangible. Um, That paper money is a big deal because as they get older, if they've never experienced the paper money and had the the emotional tie to a 20 or a 50 or a hundred dollar bill, they'll go into Amazon and hit one click ship on a $40, $47 item and not think twice about it. Yeah, then you get the credit card statement. It looks like there's too many things on there to even go through. So it's like, oh, I'll just pay it. I couldn't be bothered spending 10 minutes combing through all of my purchases. That's exactly right. Or pay the minimum, right? Where we don't even feel it. And so I think if we start young and we give kids money, we also then must give them the ability to make the decisions that they want to make. Um, With our kids, we said, listen, you're not going to spend $10 on candy necessarily. But if they said, I really want to buy this Nerf gun or this uh, this athletic piece of equipment. It was like, if you want to do that and that's your money, that you're perfectly entitled to do that. And as the purchases got bigger, we would just have a little bit more dialogue about how, how long do you think you'll use it? Will you get a good use out of it? Do you think you could resell it when you're done so there's not a sunk cost in it? And we were just teaching good them question, that one. business yeah. lessons, right? <laughs> and the other thing, James, that we did that I highly recommend is they, they say that now, I think CNN Money came out with a study that said that 65 or 66% of the American population could not come up with $500 cash in the event of an emergency. And so we said, by the time our kids are five, they had to have $300 in savings in an emergency fund. By the time they were seven, uh, they had to have 400. And by the time they were nine, they had to have 500. And people will ask me, what on earth kind of an emergency will a, a nine-year-old have? And what I often tell them is, hopefully none. I'll take care of it if they do. But if they have $500 at the age of nine, they're going to have it at 19 and 29 and 39 and 59. They're going to have it forever because it is a habit, just as you said. Yeah, absolutely. Well, many parents conflate this idea of love with cash handouts. You know, is spoiling children financially about the worst thing that you can do for their development? In my opinion, that whole idea of love and money and us conflating that idea of, I love my kids. And and the way I look at it, James, is I love my kids, therefore I don't want them to struggle. And the challenge today that I see is that there is this generation of students coming through college right now that have never struggled, really. And because of it, they think that life is supposed to be easy. And as soon as they confront struggle, they collapse. And my fear is that we're going to have a lack of entrepreneurial spirit for people in their 20s and 30s because they never experienced struggle when they were in their teens. And I think you hand your kids money, it's, it, it equates to removing all struggle from their life. I think kids need to mow lawns, they need to rake leaves, and they need to wash windows, and they need, they need to make their own money, first of all, if they want some of these big things. And um, yeah, I, I think as parents, we're taking away that ability if we give it to them straight away. Yeah, this is very much the growth mindset that Carol Dweck talks about only applied to personal finance. It's absolutely brilliant. What about when, when parents, how, how do they balance that journey of their kids as they enter adulthood where independence is required, but they might have found themselves in a situation, like I mentioned earlier with Sharon Lecter, where 
all of a sudden one day your kids come home, they might be 18 years old and, and old enough to be responsible for their own decisions and be important and be independent, but they've got like $40,000 in, in credit card debt. How do you balance the, the need for independence with interjecting to potentially stop them from going a hell of a long way down the wrong road? I think some of this goes back to my comment that that young people don't really understand the context of 10 or 15 or 20 or 40 or $100,000 in debt. And one of the ways I think as parents that we can do that is we need to have really candid, honest conversations with our kids about, oh, you like that car? Let's do a quick price check online and see, A, what does that car really run? B, what does it cost to maintain that car? See what are the payments on that on a monthly basis? And D, if you don't have a degree, how many hours would you have to work in order to pay for that car? And is that really what you want? Um, in our house, we have some interesting conversations around, I get that you want that car. The car dealer doesn't necessarily want to sell you the car. They want to sell you the loan. And so understand that, that um, as a society, what we are doing is we are teaching our kids how to payment themselves into a corner. And when you're paymented into a corner, it's really hard to build a bigger life because you're constantly working just to pay the minimums as opposed to working and knowing that you own 60 or 80% of every dime you make. So true. I think there's a bit of a misconception that when people get wealthy too, that they're all of a sudden happy to be paying a sticker price for absolutely everything. My my wife and I got a car recently, and this is the second time in a few years we've done that. We only have one car between the two of us because cars are just such a horrible, uh, you know, thing to asset to be buying. And um, these days, you can text dealers. I spend literally days texting, texting, texting all these car dealerships to eventually get the best price on leasing this car. So then, when I go to the car dealership that I want to actually um, get the car from, you already start at the absolute bottom price. And it's a simple yes or no as to whether they can do that. When the when the pandemic started, we had a whole garage full of, you know, bathroom supplies, all of these different things, pasta sauce, random things, because if I see this stuff at 50% off, then I'm going to grab it and stock it because why would you buy things at, the, at 100% of the price? And my wife laughed because I know the price of the things that we buy every week at the three different supermarkets that we go to, because that, yeah, adds up, might be like a hundred bucks, you know, a week, but certainly, or a hundred bucks even a month, but that certainly adds up over time. And there's that quote that says, if you look after the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves. And I love that. Are there some, thing, are there some things as a household that you do, or maybe you personally to make sure you're, you know, being responsible day to day with your finances? We, you know, I, I've been asked this question a number of times on different podcasts um, in, a, in one way, shape or form. And in our household, you know, we really value certain things. Um, eating out, you know, going out to eat dining is not necessarily one of them. Um, my wife's an amazing cook and we eat at home 99% of the time. I mean, for us to go out to eat, it might be once, maybe twice a month that we go out and have a nice dinner. But when we do, James, we typically really take our time and enjoy it. And I'm always, um, I'm always surprised. Maybe I'm not surprised, but I'm always taken aback, I think, when I go out to a restaurant and I see a family wolf through meal and you know throw down a card and, and walk out 25 minutes later, and, and I, the assumption that I make is they do this all the time and it's not special. And my guess is that they probably spend a decent chunk of their income going out to eat. While that may be important for them, and that's great, I also think you know, they may be sacrificing their future financial freedom or wealth um, in doing that in the moment, that just like 
uh, wolf down a meal and, and, you know, was there anything special to it? Not really. Um, so one of the things we do is we eat at home a lot. Another is we're just very, very careful about what we spend and when we spend, um, that it's something that really aligns with our values. Um, I am going through a, a couple of online courses around money because I always love to just absorb, take in more and, and pursue mastery. And um, one of the gals I'm, I'm going through her content, she said, is this thing that I'm buying worth my freedom? And, and what in buying it, how much longer does it take me to achieve that freedom? So I am having that mindset a little bit. And um, I would say we're, we're kind of closet minimalists. You know, we're not quite there, but we're almost there. <laughs> I love it. Us too. Well, what about someone who might be 40 years old and they've got a bunch of debt and they feel like, look, it may be just, maybe it's too hard. I don't even know where to begin around getting out of debt. What are some steps that people can take to, you know, start to move forward financially? I think number one is, is looking for proof that either that is true or that is untrue. And I can show you a number of cases and, and clients of mine, friends of mine that, that are in their 40s. Um, and I could riff off probably three or four examples right now. One guy had two homes, $600,000 in mortgages. Um, there were three car payments in the family. There was credit card debt. He had multiple savings accounts that he was saving for a whole bunch of random things. And I said, hey man, your, your income is like totally inefficient. You've got all this money sitting in all these accounts waiting for you to spend. At the same time, you're spending copious amounts on it, interest payments for cars and homes and credit cards. And so we built a plan that had him completely, completely out of debt in three and a half years. All homes, both homes, all three cars, all credit card debt. And so I can share uh, valid proof of people who've said, I think it's possible. I'm going to build a system that makes it possible and I'm going to go do it. And I think for those that are in their 40s and you're faced with a mountain of debt and yet you really, really want financial freedom at some point, know beyond the shadow of a doubt, you are somewhere between three and seven years of having everything paid off. All you have to do is have a little bit of discipline, a little bit of definiteness of purpose to go back to our conversation earlier. Yeah, it's a great reminder, isn't it? That so many people might feel like, hey, because I made a, a silly decision years ago that you can be proactive about getting on the on the front foot about taking care of some of those things. They don't need to haunt you um, forever. In, in my experience working in financial planning for more than 10 years, I was astounded at how many people, you know, doctors, lawyers, these are people who had very successful careers, but they knew nothing about money. And other people who just so uh, detached from any relationship with money, which is this is something we need, you know, this is almost cliche at this point, but we need to teach this, this stuff in schools. What, how do we teach kids at a, or how do we change the education system to start helping people become more responsible about finances? I believe in, in the US, correct me if I'm wrong, but things are managed at a state level, aren't they, from the, the curriculum rather than nationally? They are. And I will say that, that more and more schools today are offering financial education as part of the curriculum. It's still not enough. Um, in our state alone, they spent two days, two full days, arguing, negotiating, coming up with what the definition of financial literacy was. And, and my, my mentality was, if, it spent, if you spent two days doing that, it's the wrong people in the room defining what financial literacy is. What, what's that quote? Is it, if you want something done, give it to a busy person? <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. And not to a committee and definitely not to legislators. That's right. Um, I, I think for us to change things, you know, it, it goes back to what I talked about in my TED talk, which was that money is largely an illusion today. It's not real. 
Um, it's zeros and ones, it's bits and bytes of the $4 trillion circulating the globe on a daily basis. Only 2% of that money is in cash coin or currency. And yet we, you know, we are freely passing money about to and from each other through Venmo and, and Zelle and all these other uh, online apps. But if that's all kids know, the money never really feels real. So they get a credit card and they're like, cool, I have $1,000 to spend when they can barely afford the $28 minimum payment that comes along with it. Yeah, they need that real world experience. And that brings us into your amazing TED Talk, which is seriously one of the best things I've ever seen. It's brilliant. London Business School, more than 10 million views between the TED, uh, you know, the TED Talk page and on YouTube. So well done for such an amazing presentation. Before we talk about the content of that awesome talk, how did you put yourself in a position to be able to get a TED Talk in the, in the first place? Well, you know, it, it, uh, I really appreciate the question because this is a fun little walk down memory lane for me in terms of how things happen. And going back to even the conversation my dad and I had about me being a wizard, I kind of feel like it was manifested. And the way it manifested was um, I had been speaking professionally for some time, James. So I knew that I had chops and my career had progressed to a point where I had done you know, local groups, I had done associations, I was on college campuses all across the country. I started getting some international uh, nods. And a friend of mine said, what's next for you? And I told him, I really feel like there's a TED Talk in what I'm doing and I want to I go deliver a TED Talk. And so we, we brainstormed what that would look like. And what we came up with was at the very bottom of my signature line on my email, I had a solid double dash line. And in big, bold red letters, it said, my dream is to someday grace the TED stage. And then just below that, it said, if you know someone who could help me make that possible, I would be forever in your debt. A simple introduction would suffice. And I just, I put it at the bottom of my email signature line and I just left it. And over the course of maybe two or three months of sending out emails, you know, I'm sure thousands of people saw the message. And I ended up getting an email one day from a gentleman named Aaron, who had been a student at the University of uh, Wisconsin, Milwaukee. And he said, Adam, I'm on the curation team of this TEDx event, and you were the first person I thought of. So I went and I did my first TEDx event in the States, in Wisconsin. It was a great experience. I come home kind of riding this high of having accomplished my goal of a TED Talk. And not two weeks later, James, I got another email, uh, this time from a woman named Sarah Durlacher, who's a dear friend of mine. And she said, uh, Adam, I'm on the curation team for a TEDx event at the London Business School. You're the first person I thought of. And so that's how it materialized. Again, it just, it kind of felt like I had manifested it. It's amazing when people who don't even know what they want and don't even take the steps to put it out there in the world, and people might think that's a little bit airy-fairy. I mean, adding something to your email signature got you more than 10 million views online and, and has completely changed the trajectory of your career and the impact that you can have on the world. For people who don't even take that first step to think about what they want and then that second step of saying, how can I create those circumstances? For anyone listening to this podcast or watching that video, Adam actually told me that story privately a couple of years ago. I've never forgotten about it. And I've mentioned that on stages all around the world. It's such a brilliant, brilliant thing to do because a lot of people might say, hey, I want to be a TED Talk, you know, I want to speak on a, on a TEDx stage, but they don't know how to go about it, or perhaps it's just not for them. It's reserved for a, a lucky few. So thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's a wonderful story. So now with this TED Talk, there's obviously some amazing lessons from what you shared. 
thus the reason for the more than 10 million views. It's called What Playing Monopoly, What Playing with Monopoly. Uh, what playing Monopoly with real money taught me about my kids and humanity. And it's an incredible perspective. So don't give too much away because I want everyone to go and watch it afterwards. But where did the inspiration for that topic come from? Well, one day, you know, we're a game playing family, as I mentioned in the talk, and we love to play ball games, board games, dice games, card games. But my kids love to play Monopoly as, as many kids do. And one day I was noticing that that the game was either really rushed or really slow, depending on how my kids decided they wanted to play, whether or not they were watching TV. The money is kind of being shuffled along. And, you know, at this point, the money are like crumpled up, uh, sweaty-handed bits of paper, right? And I thought, I wonder if the game would play differently if it were real money. And in the back of my mind at the time, James, I you know, I'd come off of a, a, a tour of college campuses where I'd met a number of students who were making these very dramatic decisions around money and, and not small amounts. I mean, they were borrowing $80,000, $100,000. And I thought, I think it's because the money isn't real that this is part of the issue. And so I did a quick uh, sum of how much was on the, the counter at the time and was figuring out like, I think it's $1,500 in starter capital that you need for every player. Well, there are five of us, that's $7,500. And I figured the bank needed $2,500. So I went to my credit union on a Friday and I said, I need $9,990 in these denominations of bills in order to play this cash game of Monopoly. And um, uh, so the idea I would love to say was like this flash of brilliance. It really was observing my children and observing teenagers and early 20-somethings with money and putting the two together and saying, I think there's a disconnect and I want to figure out how to connect the dots. I love it. It's so good. So everyone's got to go and check out that that TED Talk. You mentioned something earlier about, uh, in Australia, we call it pocket money. Over here, you call it, uh, you know, a regular allowance for children. Is it important for you that anytime money is given to kids that there's some type of exchange of sacrifice or, or something like that for any money to be, to be given? You know, uh, aside from obviously birthdays or Christmas or, and things like that, special occasions? I think it's important to do, and, and I'll tell you how I reconciled that. There are a number of people, Dave Ramsey being one of them, and, and I'm sure Susie Harmon kind of shares this mindset that, that kids should be paid allowance or should be paid commission for chores done. That it's effectively like, oh, I'm you're you're selling me on this job and I'm gonna pay you this commission. The challenge is that you will at some point likely experience this, or you may have been a, a kid like this, that no matter how much money your parents had offered you to clean the toilet, you wouldn't have done it. Right. And and the thing with my kids is I didn't want them to be able to say, I'm not going to do that. I don't care how much it is. Because the reality is that there is no job beneath you, particularly in making the house run. So if it's cleaning the toilet, that's what it is. If it's sweeping out the garage, that's part of the job. And so I wanted to tie the allowance to whatever the jobs were around the house. And the only way that they would get it is if they completed the job. In my mind, what it also tied together was you're not going to go get a job, a part-time job, and assume that they're going to pay you and not show up. You know, you're, you have to show up for the, to, to work. You have to do the gig in order to get the money. The same is true here. So we did that for, for quite a while. And um, candidly, you know, speaking very honestly about it, we, we've since stopped the allowance program 
for the most part, because our kids um, do such an effective job of saving and investing and, and making money that it doesn't really feel like they need the money from us. What we've shifted that to is building um, what I would like to call a generational wealth plan, where we are building a program for our kids, much like the Rockefellers did, that by the time they get out of college, there will be an amount of money, a small bank for them to leverage, to borrow from, to buy real estate, pay down debt, whatever it may be. Um, So that's where that money has shifted to. Yeah, I love it. You're teaching them about the value of a dollar, about the value of hard work and, and responsibility and a whole bunch of other things aside from just the, the dollar amount. Well, my daughter is 18 months old. She loves Baby Shark, which you're probably very familiar with, as I'm sure everyone who's a parent is familiar with this Baby Shark song. And every day I take her for a walk around the neighborhood and she says, doo-doo, as in like she wants me to sing the Baby Shark song over and over again. So the moment it's finished, she says, doo-doo. It finishes again, she says, doo-doo. Occasionally she mixes it up with Baba because she wants Baba Black Sheep. She's extremely convincing. It's impossible for the most part to say no. As she gets older, that's going to extend to things like mobile phones where she wants to watch the video of that. I can see that where where that is going to eventually be a transition where it goes into things like shops where they say, you know, I want that tennis racket or whatever it might be, that toy that's on the shelf. How do you, at what age do you start? Because obviously the things that we're talking about here, it's not necessarily money. We're talking about ways that spoiling kids can happen just from giving them things. Now me singing a song for 45 minutes, which I don't, I don't mind, you know, my voice starts to go at the end, but it makes her very, very happy. So I'm happy to do it. At what stage do you start saying no to these things? And is there a way to say no responsibly that, that maintains the, the peace and happiness? And I wanted to ask this question because I feel like there are a lot of parents out there who they know that their kids are just the ultimate salespeople. <laughs> so I get it. Particularly for those young kids, right? You go into a Target or, or to a toy store. I want, I want, can I have this? And, and the natural reaction for a young child, especially, is to cry if they don't get it. And, you know, I've talked to parents before in large groups where they'll say, you know, my kid just has this utter meltdown. And logically, and I was taught this by a child psychologist, they said, you know, when a baby was hungry as a baby, it cried and it was fed. Uh, when the baby was cold, it cried and it was fed. When the baby was wet, it cried and it was, t- it was changed. So very naturally, they equate, if I want something, I just need to cry and then I'll get it. And as parents, we start to give in to that rationale, whether they're three or they're 13 at Target. And so what I tell parents is, when you implement the allowance program, and let's say you implement it at five years old, and the deal is the kid is going to get $5 a week. Well, that may seem like a lot to some families. Um, and it may be, you may need to ratchet that down a little bit. But if it is, um, if it is $5 a week and we go into Target and they see a stuffed animal or uh, some, you know, some gadget they want to buy, there is a lesson to be taught there where we say, well, let's look at how much it is. Okay, well, it's $18.99. How much do you have? I have 10. Okay, so if you got $5 every week, then you need 10 more dollars. That's two more weeks. And then we can come back and get that thing. And what a lot of parents will do, James, erroneously, is they'll say, listen, I'll get it and then you can pay me back. But what we're doing is we're teaching Val- instant gratification. Yeah, validating that instant gratification. 100%. Yeah. Um, and, you know, 
this this is probably hard for me to even say, but my sister, I've seen my sister do this with her teenage son. He wants a new computer. They bought it for him, but he's going to pay them back by mowing the lawn for the next two years. I'm like, it doesn't work that way. Not in our house. If they want it, they got to work for it, save money. Like we don't do stuff on credit. It's it's not the first national bank of mom and dad because <laughs> um, that that one's too easy to default on. And once they default on that bank, they're going to default on the next several banks that they're a part of. So, you know, I think that the way you bring up a child to learn delayed gratification and understand the value of money is you put money in their hand and you let them make decisions of their own accord and also feel the repercussions of that. If you, as a parent, don't think they should buy that $20 item, but they have $20 and they want to spend it, that's their call. And it's a really, it's a really hard lesson to learn if they get home and it breaks or they get home and they're like, guys, don't like it. I want to take it back. You can't do that in some cases. I love it. So even things like your emergency savings account and the, the weekly allowance or monthly allowance, whatever that might be, it's important that it's physical money rather than them seeing digital you know, numbers on, on a computer screen. A hundred percent, hundred percent. And, and uh, on that note, when we hand it to them, our policy was 10% goes to saving, 10% goes to investing, 10% goes to giving, 70% was theirs to keep. And then we had uh, what I called a family 401k program. So if you put money in investing, I would match it up to $25 a month. So my middle son, who's a very savvy one, uh, every month had $25 in his invest jar. And uh, the rest would say, well, I'm, I'm putting some in savings or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend the rest of this. But my middle son knew every, you know, every month, dad's going to give me 25 bucks if I put 25 bucks in here. So again, my, my goal was to reward that behavior. Yeah, I love it. That's so good. So good. There's a lot of gold that Adam Carroll is dropping in this episode. One question I want to ask you before we get into the, the win the day rocket round, what's your favorite thing to spend money on? James, I, I am a technology uh, nut. And I would be remiss not to say that I'm on Kickstarter or Indiegogo probably once a week. And I buy stuff I, like I, I could pray within arm's reach of me. There's multiple things I bought on, on Indiegogo and Kickstarter. I love little tech gadgets and I probably spend too much money on those things, but it's, I geek out on it. You and me both. If we make a justification that we can use them for our career and making a bigger impact, then it can't be too bad, right? That's it. That's it. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Well, let's now move into what we call the win the day rocket round, which is 10 questions for some fairly quickish answers. Are you ready for this one, Adam? I'm ready. Let's do it. Awesome. Number one, what quote inspires you the most? I love the quote. It was It's misquoted by Nelson Mandela, but it was in Marianne Williamson's book, A Return to Love. It is, our greatest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our greatest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. Love that one. One of my favorites. Number two, morning coffee or evening wine? I actually kind of prefer evening coffee, actually, as well. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I haven't had that, that yet. That's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Number three, what's one bit of advice you would give your 18-year-old self? I would tell my 18-year-old self, to align with a mentor or with multiple mentors much, much earlier. Um, I don't think mentorship was given enough credence when I was going through high school. And it is essential. I've learned so much from mentors in my life. I wish I had done it 10 years earlier. So true. People also don't like necessarily taking much instruction from their parents and things too. So to have someone outside where they can teach you the real lessons is very powerful. Indeed. Number four, what book do you gift the most? 
The book I gift the most is a book called A Happy Pocket Full of Money. Are you familiar with that book? No, I'm not. I haven't heard that one. You would love it, James. You have to read this book, A Happy Pocket Full of Money. It is by a guy named David Cameron Jacondi. And um, he, he lives in Africa. He's an amazing author. And the book essentially is less about money and more about quantum physics, about how do you create the life that you want. Yeah, fantastic. I'll grab a copy as soon as we're done. It sounds amazing. Number five, was there a vulnerability you once hid within that became your superpower? I did not realize this about myself, but I'm, I'm extremely ADD. And I love ideas. I love uh, if someone said, hey, we're thinking about going here today. I'd be like, that sounds awesome. Let's go do that. And it did not occur to me until I was probably in my mid to late 20s. Um, I met this gentleman whose desk was immaculate. And there was not a thing out of place. Pencils were neatly arranged. If there was a file folder open, he would close it and file it before he moved on to anything else. And I asked his business partner, what is John's deal? Is he OCD or what, why, is, why is his desk so spotless? And his, his business partner said, no, John is so ADD that if he doesn't have a spotless work environment, he can't singularly focus on the item at hand. And um, while you would not know it at, if you looked at my desk right now, James, typically for me, I've realized that my ADD is a skill, but only um, when I can zero in my focus to one thing. And when I can really, really zero in, I can get a tremendous amount done in 90 minutes. But that weakness, um, to, to unlock my superpower, it requires that I have alpha wave music in my ears. So I have to be li listening to rainfall or really subtle guitar or piano music um, in order for me to, to focus. Yeah, I love it. What a great lesson. Yeah, awesome. Number six, what's one thing you've learned about failure? And it could even be financial failure but or, or, or failure more broadly, whatever you want. My business partner and I, currently we have this philosophy that we fail fast and we fail often. And I think what I learned about failure early on in all the entrepreneurial ventures that I've done is that failure is not permanent, um, that failure is actually a stepping stone. And every single failure that I've had, I've gleaned something out of the failure that I plugged into the next business that made it successful. So failure for me is, is just that, it's a stepping stone. It's not final. Yeah, such a great lesson. Number seven, if you could sit on a park bench and have a conversation with someone alive or dead, who would it be? I've thought long and hard about this question because um, I consider myself to be an idea guy. And I think Thomas Edison was one of the most brilliant ideators the world has ever known. And so I would love to sit with him and pick his brain on how did these things come up or even just to watch him work, I think would have been fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Number eight, what tool or resource best helps you run your life or your business? This may sound really odd, um, but it's a walkie-talkie app called Voxer. I haven't heard of Voxer for years. Yeah, I didn't even know it was still around. Tell me about it. It is. So this, what this does for me and, and my partners, my business, James, is that email is the bane of my existence. I can't stand email. It, it, it's a constant and never-ending stream of random things. And in most businesses today, there's thousands of emails that are created. And some of them are just really simple questions that just need a quick answer. So the way we use Voxer is we might open up the Voxer app in our phone and just say, hey, where are we at on the proposal for Hubble Group? And someone else is going to buzz back. It's in progress. It'll be done tomorrow. And that's it. 
So it saves us from having to create email. It saves us from having to put something in Asana or Slack. It's just a really quick soundbite, kind of walkie-talkie, leave a message and, and get back. So at the end of every day, or typically twice a day, I'll respond to all the Voxers in the moment. And we're, we're super productive because of Voxer. And for me, that's, that's the answer. Gee, I hear you on email and even Slack. Like we've, we've moved to doing a lot of stuff on Slack, but it's just, you reach that point when things are going well and you just get bombarded by notifications. But email, my business partner, he just refuses to use email because it's just so draining. I'm, I'm better than him at email, but I'm reaching that point now where it's just, yeah, it's like everyone you send out, you get a little bit of instant relief, but then, you know, one email out might lead to three or four or five emails back. <laughs> Well, and I, to, to add to that, I think we need to be teaching email etiquette, which, which limits the production and consumption of email. So this back and forth of, does this work for you? And drop me a line of what place we should meet. No, 1030 at Panera on university, unless I hear from you otherwise. See you then. Stop, just stop the email on the last one. And then the, the rules and regulations around things like Voxer or Asana, I think organizations could do really well to set up very specific expectations of when one or the other is used so that we can limit the amount of email and there's not this constant back and forth. In our world, Asana and Voxer are the two uh, services we use and we use religiously. Mm, love it. Number nine, share one thing on your bucket list. Um, I, I, want to do, <laughs> I want to do a dude cruise um, where like, Five to 10 buddies of mine, you'd be an amazing uh, compatriot on this. So maybe you can come with us on this, James. I'm in. Um, yeah. We, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get Greg and we'll get all the, all the, all the gents, all the blokes on. Um, but I want to go on a catamaran and just go out on the open sea for like five or six days and just do, you know, sail and brainstorm and laugh and drink and, you know, eat, have fun. Um, I want to do that. It will happen in the next couple of years. Yeah, I love it. And hopefully leave mobile phones <laughs> behind. I'm quick, Even as a parent, I'm quickly learning that that's just, obviously it's a very powerful device for business, but I mean, it's just so distracting. And and I teach this stuff. You te I don't know how bad you are with, with your phone, but it's it's frustrating for me when I'm, I teach productivity and, and financial literacy and high performance and things like that. You feel that lure to your mobile phone and it's just soul destroying. So yeah, horrible. Have you watched The uh, Social Dilemma yet on Netflix? Halfway through it, we got to check out the, the back half. I love the first half and everyone's talking about it. What, did you, what was your take? It, it, um, it created a very interesting dialogue at home because my daughter is just an Instagram surfer. And she used to do it on, on uh, Snapchat until one day I said, I want you to add up how many, how many streaks you have, how many people you're snapping, how much time you're spending on it. Now put a dollar figure on that. Would you, if I paid you this, would you stop? Yeah. I said, if you had to pay, would you stop? Yeah. I said, then stop because it's not worth it. And I'm not going to pay you for it. And you're not going to you know, pay to do it. Just stop. It's not worth the time or, or effort. But there is this, man, the dopamine rush, I think that cell phones give us, it's this really false... Um, it's like a boredom solution. And a friend of mine used to call things like that mental chewing gum. It's like we've lost the inability to think and be bored, so we just resort to mental chewing gum. God, it's so true. Even when you see um, seven and eight, nine-year-old kids who are creating social media accounts and adding in hashtags where they 
they're demanding more followers and things. It just kills me that people that young are so focused on the audience that they're building. And I mean, it's a, yeah, I think it would be very tough actually to grow up in, in 2020 and 2021 where pretty much everything that you do is online and tracked and they've already created this snapshot of who you are and you've, oh, you know, no doubt. Out. yeah, which means the role of parents and all the things that we've spoken about in this episode is, is more important than ever. Indeed. Final question. What's one thing you do to win the day? This is a this is a hard question to answer. Um, the one thing I do, and it's more like a conglomeration of things, is the morning ritual. And the morning ritual for me really starts with a, a night's sleep that is similar almost every single night. So I I learned once, James, that um, we sleep in circadian rhythms. Every ninety minutes, we we go through a circadian rhythm, and so that realistically, what we should be sleeping is some number of circadian rhythms a night. So it could be six hours, could be seven and a half hours, could be nine hours, could be 10 and a half hours if you really need sleep. For me, I know that seven and a half hours is my ideal night's sleep. So if I go to bed at 9.30 or 10, I'm getting up at five or 5.30 every single morning. And I'm to the point now where if I know that if I go to bed at 10, I'll wake up at 5.28, 5.29, and I bound out of bed, first thing I do is uh, drink a glass of water and stretch and do a little bit of yoga or exercise. And that just starts the day for me the right way. Um, and then it's followed by a little bit of journaling or morning pages if you follow the writer's way. And then um, scheduling my day, so looking at my schedule. And then I take a shower, get ready, have breakfast with the kids. But it's all very sequential. And my business partner and I have this theory that if you win the first hour of the day, you win the rest of the day. And so our first hour is orchestrated and scripted to a, to an extent that just makes us feel good. Yeah. So important. Um, have you tried cold showers yet? So the, the, uh, the, the job that I had selling books door to door, they made us do cold showers every morning. <laughs> so you're haunted. haunted I'm, I'm haunted by experience. them. However, we're, we're redoing our basement. We're finishing it. And I'm, I'm building out like the ultimate downstairs. It's, you know how every guy wants a lair. This is Absolutely. my lair. This is my lair. So I've got a studio that I'm building down there. Um, I've got an exercise, kind of a a gym area. Adjacent to the gym area, there's a bathroom that I'm putting in a three-person sauna and a stand-up shower right next to it. So my morning routine, once this is done here in the next few weeks, will be go downstairs, exercise, sit in the sauna, meditate, take a cold shower, get ready, and then go into the studio and work. So... um, I'm jacked about that. So, I, you know, it sounds weird to be excited for cold showers, but I'm super excited by it. My morning routine is almost identical to yours with the exception of, of adding in cold showers. So my wife and I started that five months ago. We haven't had a single non-cold shower in the morning ever since. I have never seen anything like it for sustained energy levels throughout the day with the one disclaimer that not all cold showers are created equal. So we went up to Big Bear, you know, the mountain region near LA, and you have a cold shower up there. It is like liquid ice coming out of the tap. So obviously being in Iowa, I think maybe you could have a little bit of hot just to get on the the LA cold shower equivalent. (laughs) Yes. Holy cow. I can't even imagine what the water out, because that's like mountain fed spring water coming out, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's brutal. Yeah. 
Well, there are a bunch of ways to connect with Adam and we'll link to all of these in the show notes. You can check out his website, adamspeaks.com. Connect with him on Twitter at Adam Carroll. Learn how to get out of debt at theshredmethod.com. And of course, watch his TED Talk, What Playing Monopoly with Real Money Taught Me About My Kids and Humanity. It's an incredible video. Again, all of that and more will be linked into the show notes. Adam, so great to see you, my friend. Thanks so much for being on the Win The Day Show. James, been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Adam Carroll. Sometimes, especially as parents, the conversations around money can be very difficult to initiate, but it's much better to do that now and empower yourself to change rather than keep putting it off. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and let us know your favorite takeaway in the review or in the comments on YouTube. To help support the show, hit the subscribe button and share this episode with those who need it most. Win the Day with James Whitaker is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever you listen to podcasts. That's all for this episode. Remember to get out there and win the day. Until next time, onwards and upwards, always. Always.